Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not def defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all this I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with men, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Please join me in prayers. Dear Lord, Thank you for your written word and mighty truths it contains. We pray that in the power of your Holy Spirit, you will open our hearts and minds and give us a teachable spirit that is receptive to all that you would have us learn today. May your anointing be with mine as well as he preaches your word. And may your name be glorified today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please do keep your Bibles open at that section. We'll be spending our time there, and after this, uh, we'll sing again, and then we'll have the Lord's Supper communion. So uh, one of our elders, Joe Byrne, will lead us in that time. We're in this series on the Gospel of Mark. The series is called The Story That Changes Everything. And this particular section of Mark's Gospel is all about discipleship. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Jesus has said in chapter 8, a hinge point in, in the book, that what he's come to do is come to die, to suffer and be killed, and on the third day rise again. And from that point on, he's showing us, he's showing his followers and us, the readers of this book, what it means to follow him. And he is radical in the extreme and very intense. And today we're going to learn Jesus demands the cost of following Jesus when it comes to something very dear to all of us, which is our money. So would you look again at the text? And we'll look again at uh, chapter 10, verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this man appears to be asking the one really important question that nobody has actually yet asked Jesus in the book. What do we need to do to inherit eternal life? 
might think that was the, we might think that was the most important question of all. Isn't that what all the religions in the world are really asking, one way or another, the way to life? But Jesus' reply sends him into a tailspin. Look at what he says. Uh, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now that's a kind of a brisk response, isn't it? There's no polite courtesy here, no return of flattery, none of it. Why do you call me good? Why does Jesus do this? Well, at this stage in the book, and in this stage of human understanding, everybody's still thinking of Jesus as merely a human teacher. The man is, even the disciples are, and Jesus here is challenging a basic problem. Do you really think that a human being can be good? Because the Bible teaches us that no one is good except God alone. In other words, this man has a deficient idea of goodness. And that is a major part of the problem as we see next. He asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now just think about the context. If you were here last week or if you've read this before, what happened right before this episode? Just look down and you can see it in, in the bold heading there in the Bible. People were bringing the little children to Jesus. And the point of that section was to remind us about the status of children in the ancient world. They were people with no status. They had no wealth, no merit, no value of their own to bring. They came with nothing. And therefore, the teaching point that Jesus was making in that section was, if you want to enter the kingdom, it's got nothing at all to do with your moral efforts or your good deeds or your merits. You simply have to come as an undeserving, unworthy little child and receive the free grace of God. So, straight after, hot on the heels, we have this rich man coming along. Wouldn't you expect that Jesus will now use his moment to preach grace to this man? Surely he will. But he doesn't. Instead, he preaches the law. Look at what he says. You know the commandments. Verse 19, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's bringing the law. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because of this man's heart, because this man still thinks that he can deserve heaven through his own efforts. In fact, he says he's kept God's law, all of it, since he was a boy. And if you sincerely think that you deserve heaven because of your own goodness, then you will not accept God's grace. You won't think you need it. You already think you're good enough. Why would you need grace and mercy from God? Until you know you're lost... You will never cry out to be found. If you think you deserve heaven through your own efforts, you won't see your need of a savior because the good news only makes sense if you see yourself as a sinner who needs to be saved. In other words, Jesus is trying to get the man to look a little deeper, to see his true need, to see that spiritually he has nothing. Spiritually, he's just like the little children. But the man's reply shows how blind he is. Look again, verse 20. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Really? Now notice what Jesus quoted. It was a selection of the Old Testament commands. It was the ethical part of the Ten Commandments plus one about fraud. 
And let's be as generous as we can here, shall we? You could keep them on a surface level. Now, if you know the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, you will know that Jesus doesn't really think that the surface level obedience is adequate at all. He says there, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if any man looks at a woman lustfully, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, what we really need if we're going to keep the law is the depth righteousness that goes right down deep through your whole being. And therefore we know, O Bible readers, that no one has ever kept God's commands at a deep level for all of their life. But Jesus actually doesn't go after the man on that point. He doesn't go after him. He doesn't call him a hypocrite. He doesn't renounce him. Far from it. In fact, in verse 21, there's a very poignant moment because he says, it says here, Jesus looked at him and loved him. It doesn't say that anywhere else. He loved him. The word that we have translated there as looked is an intent, penetrating gaze. He's looking deeply at this man. He looks right into his soul. And he sees him for who he really is. The man is actually sincere. But he's terribly deluded. And Jesus loves him. Now, notice in passing what that means. Jesus loves you in spite of your spiritual stupidity. That's a comforting thought, isn't it? And so we, those of us who are followers of Jesus, should love those who are spiritually weak, who don't get it, and not respond to them with criticism and pride. Moreover, Christians should love the rich. We talk about loving the poor, rightly so, but we should love the rich too. And not disdain them. Because if you do, it may well be because you're self-righteous. Because you feel inferior. Or you're just plain jealous. The rich need Jesus. In fact, it's harder for them to accept him than the poor. As we're going to see shortly. Jesus looks at this guy. He loves him. And then, this is what you do if you love someone. He confronts him. He doesn't leave him where he is he wants him to move forward there's one commandment that Jesus hasn't quoted yet it's the first one in the ten commandments and it's the most important one it's this you shall have no other gods before me Exodus chapter 20 I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage you shall have no other gods before me and the reason why I say this is the most important of the commandments is that obedience to this underpins obedience to all the rest. You never break one of the other commandments without breaking the first one. You never break the eighth commandment, you shall not steal, unless you're actually making something else that you want more important than obeying God. So much that you want to steal it. You see what you've just done? You've made that thing into an ultimate thing and broken the first commandment. Jesus knows that this man has got something in his life that is more important to him even than God. And so he calls him out. One thing you lack, he says in verse 21. Just one. This is a generous statement. Just one thing you lack. Just one. But it is one thing that will make all the difference for eternity. One thing you lack. Go. Sell everything you have. And give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And what is Jesus doing here? He's put his finger on the real heart problem of the man. So Jesus has come round the back and tapped him on the shoulder. 
What's your true God? It's his wealth. That's the thing that makes him feel secure. That's the thing that makes him feel comfortable. That's the thing where he gets his significance, his identity, his place in the world. That is his functional God. And herein lies the danger for decent moral people. You can keep all the ethical commands of the Bible up to a point. You can refuse to lie, to cheat, to steal. You can pay your taxes, keep your promises, clean your teeth twice a day, and be faithful to your spouse as long as you both shall live. You can live a fine, moral, decent life. You can do all of that and still be absolutely lost, according to the Bible. To be as lost as the vilest sinner condemned to hell. Because you would not let God be number one in your life. And so in the end, all you're left with is moralism. You kept commandments five to ten in the Ten Commandments, but you broke the first one, which was the most important. Something else was your true God. Something else was your functional Lord and Savior. That's what Jesus is driving out with this man. And it leads to one of the most poignant moments in the whole book. Look at verse 22. The man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This man is very rich and he goes away very sad. He is literally appalled. The word used here is like when a cloud passes over the face of the sun. That's what happens to his face. A shadow falls on it and he walks away. He forsakes Jesus Christ never to return again. Now without saying anything more, Mark, the writer, has said everything. You see, this man, this fine, upstanding citizen, walks away from Jesus. He walks away from his only hope of eternal life and glory. He walks away from the only hope of forgiveness. The only hope in life and death, the only true comfort, is standing right there, and he rejects Jesus. Why? For the sake of some cash and some property, which will all be gone in a few years anyway. Now, part of the dilemma for us here as readers of this is what this means about Jesus' view of money. Let me just make a couple of comments about that before we move on. First of all, we notice that Jesus treats every person as a unique individual. He doesn't tell every rich person he meets to do this. In fact, this is the only time he does it, this guy. In the case of Zacchaeus, another rich man, a tax collector, Zacchaeus gives 50% of his wealth to the poor, and he repays those he's cheated. And other times, Jesus doesn't even mention money to rich people. It stands to reason that not everyone can give away all their possessions. Someone has to own a house for Jesus and his homeless followers to live in. Someone's got to have money to pay the, the bill at the restaurant. The second observation is that there are numerous rich people in the Bible who are godly. And they're great examples of faith. Abraham. Solomon. King David. Job, the Bible is not anti-wealth, nor is it against wealth creation. Its view is far more nuanced than that. In fact, the Bible's view of money is more nuanced than either a simplistic socialist view or a simplistic capitalist view. In general, the Bible's more positive about wealth creation and money, its potential, than socialism. 
And in general, the Bible is more negative about the dangers of money and what it can do to you than capitalism. It is a third way. Thirdly, notice that Jesus always goes after the issue in each person's heart. The thing that's keeping them from him. In another place, in another gospel, in John, he talks to a woman in Samaria at a well and has this fascinating interaction with her. He doesn't mention a single thing about money. With her, the issue is about men. He goes after her, her heart's desire to be accepted and loved and secure with a man. That's the thing he goes after. Now, back to the young man in our story. What's his issue? The man's heart problem is to do with wealth. It meant everything to him. He couldn't let it go. Even though Jesus is standing right in front of him, looking in his eyes, loving him. Now that shows us that wealth is very dangerous. It is very dangerous to you. Jesus doesn't call each follower to give away all their stuff, but he does call every follower to give him everything, to bring everything under his rule. And that means that nothing in your life can come before Jesus Christ if you would follow him. Is there something in your life right now that is more precious to you than Jesus Christ? Is there something or someone that you would not leave or let go to follow him? Now, whatever that is, whoever that is, that is your God. That is your God. And if you will not leave it, in the end, you will leave Jesus and go away sad. And in the end, you will lose everything. Now, that is the general point that comes from these passages. But the specific point here is about money and about the spiritual danger of money, of property, of wealth. So let's focus on that for a few moments. I'm actually on my second point. I forgot to mention we've got four points beginning with D. And we're on to number two, the danger of wealth. Danger. Why is money so dangerous? Why does Jesus give such a serious warning? Just look at what he says next in verse 23. Uh, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Such a serious warning, he gives it twice. Money is very dangerous spiritually. The richer you are, the harder it is for you to make spiritual progress. Why is it so dangerous? Two reasons. Firstly, money enslaves, and secondly, money deceives. It enslaves. Money has the power of addiction. You never have enough, do you? I mean, have you ever been in a place where you said, I've just got too much money at the moment. I don't think what to do with it. You never have too much. Your appetite for money tends to grow over time. Think about it. What you had 10 years ago is no longer enough, is it? Probably. Why? Because money deceives you about how much you have, and the more money you have, the more you are in denial about how much you've got. Some studies have shown that for most people, the more money they make, the smaller percentage they give away. Now, why would that be the case? 
because the more money you have, the less you feel you have. How does it work? Whenever your income increases, you tend to increase your expenses. Because you can afford more, you spend more. There was a time in your life when you were thrilled to own a bicycle. I speak here to the adults, the children have gone out. There was a time when you were so excited about a bicycle. And then maybe it was a car. But when you made more money, you could now afford a, well, a rather nicer car, maybe even a new one, a prestigious car. Now you wouldn't dream of going back to that old banger or the bike. You see what happened? Your income increased and your expenses increased. Money has this strange power to harden you by addicting you to the benefits that it brings and making sacrifice look impossible. Another way this works is that money gets you into places. It has a power about it. The more you have, the more access you have to nice places, good restaurants, the smart gym, and the really smart people. And that is deadly. Because when you get into those places, you find there's always someone who is a lot richer than you. And so suddenly what you've got doesn't look like that much anymore. And so you never feel like you have enough. And therefore, you don't have enough to give away. You always feel strapped for cash because you're always comparing yourself with someone higher up the ladder. If your friend got a Range Rover for Christmas, how does your car look now? If your friend got a Mulberry handbag for her birthday, how does your handbag look now? Now, can you think of anything else in our life that has that level of power of addiction? Something that you could never have enough of. You never have too much. Your appetite for it tends to grow. I would say heroin is a comparable substance, although thankfully I've never tried it. Money enslaves. It also deceives. It fools you into thinking you're secure. Your heart says, now that I've got this amount of money in the bank, this house, this pension, these savings, I am now secure. But can't you see how foolish it is to believe that? How could this money, this thing, grant you the security that your heart craves? It can be taken away from you at any moment. Stock markets crash. Houses get repossessed. Pensions can be raided. Even banks go bust. Or you could just die too soon to enjoy it. I read a remarkable statistic recently uh, in, in the free paper that you get on the bus. It said that most Premier League players are bankrupt within three years of retiring. Why? Because you just keep spending even when you haven't got it anymore. It's deceptive. But it's such a powerful illusion. You look at your bank balance growing. Some of you do this. You look at your bank balance and if it's up, you feel a tangible sense of relief and comfort. There are very few things in life that can give you such a powerful illusion that you are in control and that you're ready to face the world. But you're not. You're not ready for anything because money can't really protect you from any of the terribly bad things that life come up, sends our way. It can't protect you from cancer or heart disease. It can't protect you from heartbreak or divorce. It can't protect you from betrayal, depression, loneliness. There are many terrible things in life, and money doesn't help much at all when they come. It doesn't enable us to stand in the real storms. It is a false friend. Money enslaves. It deceives. That is its power, and that's why it's so spiritually dangerous to us. Riches become our security, our self-worth, not God. 
Because wealth can bring this kind of feeding to our pride and make us feel we're better than others. We, we don't need God. Wealth provides many, many distractions from Christian ministry and Christian service. You're so free now to, to do many absorbing leisure activities. You haven't got time for church and for Christian community. The cares of wealth are very distracting. Money takes a lot of management. So does property, possessions. Therefore, Jesus says elsewhere, it has a choking effect. The care of wealth has a choking effect. And it has this impact of setting our heart on this world and on the things we can enjoy here, not on the world to come. Can you smell the danger? This is why Jesus gives this serious warning twice. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And then he adds in verse 25 this memorable saying. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The camel was the largest land mammal that was known in that country. And the eye of a needle was pretty much the smallest man-made thing they could think of. Now, is it impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Well, it's not impossible, but it's very hard on the camel. This is an image of great difficulty, isn't it? C.S. Lewis wrote a poem about it in the mid-60s. Here's what he said. All things, e.g. a camel's journey through a needle's eye, are possible, it's true. But picture how the camel feels, squeezed out in one long bloody thread from tail to snout. <laughs> it's hard to enter the kingdom of God if you've got all that money bogging you down. So how are we doing with this, this danger? I'm going to move thirdly to, to diagnosis. I want to ask us to do some self-diagnosis today, just for a couple of minutes. We need to do a quick health check. Look for the, some warning signs. Feel your pulse, spiritually and financially. Here are seven signs that money is too important to you. Ready? One, envy. Do you strongly resent people with money? Two, anxiety. Do you tend to worry about money a lot? Three, bias. Do you have a clear bias toward people with money? Frankly, do you prefer them? Four, spending. Are you typically prone to retail therapy? You tend to shop in order to feel good. Five, miserliness. Are you just stingy and tight with money? You can't open your hand that much. Six, preoccupation. Do you spend way too much time thinking about money, managing money, counting it, calculating how much you have or you could invest or you could win? Seventh, joy. Is your happiness and quality of life tied to your wealth. Another C.S. Lewis quote, don't let your happiness depend on something you may lose. Has money got its deadly tentacles around your heart, friends? Look out, or it will squeeze you dry. It will squeeze your heart until all that's left is a small, dry, hard thing like a peach stone. 
Look at what Jesus says. He's deadly serious. It's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom. How hard it is for the rich to be saved. So what can be done about it? Clearly we need deliverance, fourthly. Deliverance. Back to the passage. Now the disciples, as usual, are standing around Jesus, absolutely flabbergasted. They're amazed. They're astonished. They just can't believe it, what's just happened. What? Look at this, uh, verse 24. The disciples are amazed at his words. So he tells them again. And then in verse 26, they are even more amazed. And they say to each other, well, who then can be saved? Their jaws are hanging so low, they're actually scraping on the ground. What? Now they're astonished, because Jesus has just turned away the biggest potential donor that the ministry has ever seen. This is a group that don't have you know, one loaf of bread in the boat. I mean, the guy almost had his checkbook out. Low-hanging fruit. Jesus, just reel him in. More seriously, in their culture, it was generally assumed that if you were rich, it was because God favored you and blessed you. The logic went like this. Well, look at you, your life. You're blessed with wealth. Wealth comes from God. Clearly, God must really like you. You're enjoying favor. And yet Jesus has just completely torpedoed that idea. And it's just going down quicker than the Titanic. And then there's a personal reason. These guys are just feeling their own confidence drain away. If that's how Jesus treats a fine, moral, upstanding rich man, who presumably enjoys lots of God's favor, then what about the rest of us? We don't stand a chance. So they ask what is really the most important question in the book so far. Verse 26, who then can be saved? That is the most important question you can ask in life. Who then can be saved? And now Jesus gives them that look. Verse 27, same word in the Greek language. Jesus looked at them. He looks right at them intently and he says, searching them with his gaze, it's impossible. <laughs> what he says. Verse 27, with man, this is impossible to be saved, but not with God. All things are possible with God. So that begs a question, doesn't it? What about us? Are we going to be saved? And Peter, you know, if you, as you read the Bible, you come to love Peter. He's often the first to speak up. He's the first guy to jump out of the boat. He's one of those people, he says what everyone else is thinking about, but they're too embarrassed to say. And here he speaks up again. Verse 28. Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Now, we, our life group looked at it, this passage this week on Thursday night, and they asked a number of great questions. One of them was, what is the tone of Peter's comment here, his question? What is the tone? Oh, great, great question. Of course, we don't really know. But I think his tone is pleading. Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He's not being proud. He's not being objectionable. He's really, I think, quite worried. We've left everything to follow you. Does it count? I, I didn't have that much. It's a meager sacrifice. Does, does it count for anything, Jesus? We left everything. The, I left our father's business in the boats. Another guy left his tax collector's booth. The traipsing around. We left everything. And Jesus says, oh yeah. Verse 29, a wonderful reply. Truly, I tell you, so reassuring, no one who has left home 
or brothers or sisters, or mother or father, or children, or fields, for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. In other words, no one is shortchanged in the kingdom of God. You may give everything you have, but paradoxically discovered that you received far more than you lost. Anybody experienced that? Yeah, some of you have. Jesus even is so bold as to say, it'll even be true in this life. It's not all pie in the sky when you die by and by. Now, of course, what you gain may well be of a different kind than what you gave away. You may have lost your earthly family if you follow Jesus, but you did gain a new family. The global family of the Christian church, which Jesus bought with his own blood, they are now your family. You have a family in every nation in the, in the earth. You may have lost your home for following Jesus, but you gained a new home with Jesus' people. You may have lost fields, but you gain and are given far greater fields the mission field of Jesus, which is white unto harvest, waiting for laborers to bring in the glad harvest to the barns of the kingdom. There are no losers with God. So that leaves us with a final question. How do we get to be delivered? How do we get to be delivered? What would cause you and I to choose the cost of discipleship? We may have heard the call, will we pay the cost? Surrender all. Come under the rule of Jesus. You've seen how costly it is, especially for the camel. Now, the rich man carried the cost and went away sad. And we will too, if we only feel that Jesus is disapproving of us and tutting. But there is so much more. Because there was a greater rich ruler. He was one of infinite wealth infinite status, infinite com comfort. The universe belonged to him. And yet he gave it all up to buy you. 2 Corinthians 8 reminds us of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He gave up everything for you at the cross. He descended to the abyss. He went from the place of infinite security to the place of brokenness and abjection. Jesus Christ was rejected by God. It was the will of the Father to crush him. He lost it all to get you, to gain you. To have you, to win you, Jesus had to leave his throne and his cosmic wealth and descend to the absolute depths of misery to save you. And Jesus says, if I could leave all that for you, can you be willing to set aside your money for me and receive 100 times more back in this lifetime and then the age to come? Now, when you really know Jesus, money stops being your identity because he's your identity. Money stops being your security. It stops being your comfort. Now it becomes just money. 
a great gift from God, something to be used for his glory. So, we're going to come to the Lord's table in a minute. We're going to remember in these um, visual, physical symbols of his body and his blood broken and shed for us. We're going to remember the cross and we're going to come back to Jesus. And if you are a follower of his, then come back and bring your, bring your money and all that you are to him once again. But let me just finish with a very practical application. My wife, who is my finest sermon critic, sometimes says to me, you know, it was, it was fine, but you didn't really apply it very clearly. So I'm going to give one uh, clear application, which some pre- preachers find difficult to make, which is this. Uh, our church uh, currently has a deficit of about £3,000 a month. We have, we're going to lose £36,000 this year. God's always provided for us, okay? But you could make a difference. And so let me ask, does your giving make a difference? And you say, I don't have 3000 a month, Mike. <laughs> I don't mean making a difference to the church. Does your giving make a difference to you? Do you notice it? Do you feel it when it goes out of your bank account? Or is it the last thing you think of when you've paid for all the things you want to spend money on yourself? So let me ask you to think about how you could bring your offering today. We're not going to take a collection, but we do have these envelopes. And you could fill one in and make a pledge or put some money in that wooden box over there. You can actually act on this within 20 minutes. Wouldn't that be good? Let's pray.